I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. The northern Italian city of Turin is quite distinctive as Italian cities go. It's still Italy, so of course it's got its grand piazzas and ornate churches and pasta and pizza and cappuccinos. But whereas in so many Italian cities it's the ancient Roman or Renaissance history that's so prominent and celebrated, Turin is very much a 19th century city. Of course, it has a long history, and there are lots of important buildings from earlier centuries, but so much of what makes Turin such a unique and fascinating city comes from the 19th century. The colonnaded walkways, the opulent cafes, the enormous Piazza Vittorio, and the grand, imposing train station. And then there are the two most well-known museums, both housed in 19th century buildings. The Egyptian Museum and the Mole, an amazing film museum and the symbol of the city. If you happen to have an Italian two-cent coin amongst your euro, it's the mole that's on the back. But there's another 19th century museum in Turin that's not so well known and wasn't even open to the general public until relatively recently. If you take a stroll away from the centre of the city, following the long, leafy Parco Valentino which runs along the River Po, there's an unassuming museum which forms part of the University of Turin. It's a museum of criminal anthropology and it was established by a man who in the 19th and early 20th century was famous across the world for his controversial but very popular theories about criminals. His name was Cesare Lombroso, and he believed that criminality was inherited, that there were born criminals who could be reliably identified by their physical features. He was an Italian doctor and psychiatrist, and he was one of the first people to really consider criminality a subject worthy of scientific study. His ideas were groundbreaking, and despite the fact that he was unbelievably spectacularly wrong, he's often referred to as the father of criminology. Basically, his idea is that a certain percentage of the criminal population, not all of it, and he varied on the extent of this, but a certain percentage, somewhere between 40 and 30%, are born criminals. This is Professor Christine Ferguson. I'm Christine Ferguson. I'm a professor of English literature at the University of Stirling in Scotland, and I work on what we might describe as a Victorian weird. So, born criminals then? So, at the point of birth, they are already hereditarily determined to be uh, uh, criminals all their life, right? Um, And there's not much that can be done, although it can be observed. Uh, And not only are they determined to be criminal, but we can read those signs in their body if we know how to read them well. And he came up with this theory after examining the bodies and the skulls of executed criminals, mostly in the south of Italy when he was working um, uh, down there. And the skulls are important. As you walk around the museum in Turin, you can peruse Lombroso's vast collection. There are photos and diagrams, strange measuring instruments, various objects owned or made by criminals. And then there's the skulls, rows and rows of skulls each of them meticulously measured to establish how different physical features could be used to identify the natural criminal. There is one skull of particular importance. It's that of a man named Giuseppe Villela from Calabria in the south of Italy. He was a brigante, a brigand or bandit, who died in prison. Lombroso acquired his skull for examination and it was while looking at it that he had his eureka moment. He saw an abnormal hollow in the skull, one he thought was otherwise only found on a human fetus still in development or on certain primates. This criminal, it seemed, was not a fully developed human. He was like a child, an ancient primitive man or an animal. He thought that um, born criminals had what he called a 
anomalies or stigmata, so things that um, indicated the criminality. And these features were things that made them often look more primitive, um, more animal, um, or in his words, more atavistic, because he thought that criminals actually represented an earlier evolutionary stage of, of humankind, right? Before the race was, was, the human race was as advanced. And that's why we see a compulsion to commit criminal acts. So Lombroso began developing his theory, measuring skulls and examining everything about criminals, their physical features, their mental development, their artwork and handwriting, tattoos on their body, their sensitivity to pain. He asked other scientists across Europe to send him skulls and measurements so he could trace the development and the distribution of criminality. And he published his findings, most famously in a book called L'Uomo Delinquente, Criminal Man. He published these theories um, in a few places, uh, most importantly in this book called Criminal Man, uh, that he published in Italian in 1876. This was then uh, revised about five times during his lifetime. Um, and then a really, in some ways, even more interesting book called Criminal Woman in 1893, where he tried to make these same theories of, sort of physical stigmata of criminality apply to female offenders, although that was a much harder task. Um, and Criminal Man, it's kind of a book um, that lots of people know about, even if they've not read it. So it's not even translated into English until after his, his death in 19. 19- 11, but by that time it's been available in French and German for a long time and also it's just written about in the press a lot so sort of people will know about Lombroso even if they've never read Criminal Man and they'll know that he's the man that is arguing essentially that criminals maybe have features that are primitive, that are simian, um, that are somehow related to an earlier stage of human evolution. Typical features of the born criminal included things like a sloping forehead, fleshy lips, a flattened nose, a projecting jaw, long arms, a receding hairline or scanty beard, protruding ears, a beaked nose, bushy eyebrows, and on and on. So, you know, pretty wide-ranging. And, crucially, his measurements, while theoretically very rigorous, made broad enough assumptions that supposed criminal types could be made to fit certain categories when convenient. So, first of all, in some ways what Lombroso was saying isn't that new or surprising because people have been saying there's something about the way criminals look since, you know, classical times, basically. And we can find all kinds of attempts to uh, map and read criminal deviance on uh, on the human body. And certainly early in the 19th century, we have uh, programs like Physiognomy uh, with Lavater, who's arguing again that we can read characters through certain kinds of facial expressions or facial shapes, and then phrenology, which maps character to bumps in the head. Uh, So there's really a a precedence and an appetite for this kind of correlation between body and soul. But what Lombroso does is he takes all the the new theories and debates that are coming out of Darwinism and social Darwinism particularly, and he applies them to this typification of the criminal body um, and thinks that um, it's not just that um, criminals look a bit funny, but we can actually map the way they look onto this progressive evolutionary schema. So, as with many scientific theories of this time, white, Northern European and American men are the most developed form of humanity, and all other groups have failed to reach this pinnacle. Non-white races, primitive people, women, children, animals, and now criminals. They could all be equated in various ways. 
And also, again, for Lombroso, it's important to remember that he's a North Italian, Northern Italian who is doing a lot of his researches in Southern Italy, which then, as now, is subject to a huge amount of racial prejudice about Southern Italians looking more African, being more mixed in race, and hence, in the 19th century, that reads as criminality, right? So he's drawing on, I suppose, social Darwinism, but also on imperial racism. It's easy to demonstrate today why Lombroso's ideas were so biased and misguided, but they were incredibly popular at the time, and certainly not just in scientific circles. I mean, in some sense, it's in popular culture that Lombroso has his biggest impact in Britain, right? Because it's well known that he was mocked and derided in the British press routinely. Right? Um, and certainly British criminologists wanted nothing to do with him. They thought that he was representative of this kind of European, you know, continental airy fairy theorizing that, that wasn't practical like British criminology was. And of course, the problem with this is they're, they're biological essentialists as well. They believe, <laughs> they believe that you can, you know, read criminal types as well. It's almost a sense with, with Lombroso that they, they don't want a foreigner coming over to tell them how to be racist, if you know what I mean. It's, it's, it's a resistance to his ideas, even though British culture and British criminology is very open to this idea that there might be such a thing as a criminal type. Um, so he's mocked by other criminologists, but his ideas penetrate into literature and it's interesting because it tells us that people know about Lombroso. So in Bram Stoker's Dracula, Van Helsing, the Dutch doctor and vampire hunter, says of Dracula, the Count is a criminal and of criminal type. Nordau and Lombroso would so classify him. Partly what Van Helsing is doing by citing the sources, indicating the modernity and the continental nature of his belief that he's not just this old superstitious get, but he's using these new scientific theories to explain this, you know, deviant supernatural predator, but science can still explain him. And Stoker assumes the reader will know who Lombroso is and what Van Helsing means by this statement. Dracula is a born criminal. Ten years later, in Joseph Conrad's novel The Secret Agent, Lombroso pops up once again, a topic of popular discussion, although this time his ideas are pretty forcefully attacked. Lombroso is an ass. Comrade Ossipon met the shock of this blasphemy by an awful, vacant stare. Did you ever see such an idiot? For him, the criminal is the prisoner. Simple, is it not? What about those who shut him up there? Forced him in there? Exactly, forced him in there. And what is crime? Does he know that, this imbecile who has made his way in this world of gorged fools by looking at the ears and teeth of a lot of poor, luckless devils? Teeth and ears mark the criminal, do they? And what about the law that marks him still better? The pretty branding instrument invented by the overfed to protect themselves against the hungry. Red-hot applications on their vile skins, hey? Can't you smell and hear from here the thick hide of the people burn and sizzle? That's how criminals are made for your Lombrosos to write their silly stuff about. So, not everyone was convinced. You know, it's a funny thing with Lombroso. In some sense, Victorian literature... Uh, has a really ambivalent position about whether or not you can tell people are deviant by looking at them, right? So there's a long tradition, particularly in things like 
Penny Dreadfuls. Penny Dreadfuls were these cheap, sensational, serialised stories of murder, crime or adventure published right through the 1800s. They were incredibly popular and often ran for years and to thousands of pages. If you think about the mysteries of London. All 12 years and 4.5 million words of it. Possibly the longest novel ever written. Or, um... The String of Pearls, of course, which is the original um, Sweeney Todd novel. Um, there's no suspense about who the criminal is. We know who they are. They've got big protruding jaws, sunken eyes. Again, there's a kind of bestial appearance to them. And, and so there is a, there's a literary shorthand. But then, on the other hand, there's sensation fiction, another hugely popular type of fiction in Victorian times. Novels which combined gothic and realist features and focused on sensational, usually criminal subjects. Mary Elizabeth Braddon's novel Lady Audley's Secret is one of the best known. Sensation fiction does the opposite. Sensation fiction garners its sensational effect through the idea that actually crime is invisible, that you cannot tell. Lady Audley is a beautiful English rose, and the fact that she murders her husband is completely unreadable on her body. And I think Victorian realism is the same thing. If you think about George Eliot, George Eliot is always telling us you can't tell the quality of people's characters by, you know, how long their eyelashes are, or how beautiful they might be. So I think if you're a writer, mining the, mining the culture for these ideas for your fiction, certainly for your popular fiction, I think there's this tension between wanting to give us the criminal who is always already an animal, who always looks misshapen in some way, and then criminal who's like, I don't know, who's like Patrick Bateman, right? Who just looks, looks like the completely most bourgeois, normal person. And this is something that certainly hasn't gone away in fiction or film or culture more generally. How do we portray the criminal? How can we unsettle notions of what a criminal should be or look like? And how can we use that to the best effect in creating crime stories, in creating great villains or great detectives? All of these tensions come together in one of the greatest stories of the 19th century, and one that continues to be reinvented and reinterpreted, Robert Louis Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde. Which is a really interesting novel for bringing these different theories together, where we get um, a version of Hyde, and all the film versions of Hyde, they turn him into Lombroso's criminal man, right? They visualised him as someone who is ape-like and bestial and maybe a bit shrunken and so forth. But the most important thing that Stevenson tells us is that Hyde gives the impression of deformity without having any reason for it. We know there's something wrong with him, but Stevenson wants to avoid pinning that too precisely to any physical features. And I think that's why Hyde is so unsettling. Like We don't we know that he looks funny, but we don't know why he looks funny. It's not linked to any of these conventional taxonomies of what the criminal body might be, right? And that's part of the reason that's just such a disturbing book to read. The best crime stories use this tension. They question the criminality inherent in people and society, and they question our ability to detect and stop crime in our midst. Lombroso's idea that you can somehow identify a criminal from birth from abnormalities on their skull or other measurements seems pretty far-fetched today. But not only is it easy to see why the idea was so appealing in its time, but it's still an alluring idea at its core. If you, of course, selectively ignore the horrendous consequences. Whether we mean to or not, we judge people based on their appearance every day. It's an alluring fantasy, the fantasy of an entirely scrutable world 
right? It is difficult to not know the mystery, especially in big urban population centres when you don't know who everyone is. Maybe you're new, there's a sense of constant change and shift and the idea that there might be some kind of shorthand that will allow you to quickly and immediately read who you're with, whether someone's a predator or a friend, that's very attractive. You know, and the way that it's carried out in 19th century culture and indeed in 21st century culture is often horrific. But I think that impetus to try and have some kind of scrutability, you know, some kind of order and logic that you might know, even to read your own body, right? To know what kind of the significance of that is, that's powerful. Um, and I think people still completely operate that way. And if you want to know what type of mind came up with these ideas, you can go to Lombroso's museum and look at his skull. At his request, his skeleton is on display. There, along with all the other skulls, a testament to a deeply flawed but hugely intriguing and influential chapter in the history of crime. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to know more about Lombroso, about the show, guests, music, and more, then head over to wttepodcast.com, where you can also find all of the previous Words to That Effect episodes, related articles, and lots of other good stuff. I've put some links up there to some of Lombroso's original photos and skulls of criminals, so have a look. Special thanks this week to Professor Christine Ferguson. You can read more about her work and research if you follow the links on the Words to That Effect website. She does a lot of really fascinating work on the occult in particular, so um, have a look, especially if you enjoyed the episode I did a while back on Arthur Conan Doyle and spiritualism. A lot of that is related as well. Music this week was by 3Epcano, a great Irish band who are no longer around, but musician Matthew Nolan is very much still making music, and you can find the latest links on wttpodcast.com as well. Finally, you can check out the show on Facebook and follow me on Twitter. I'm at C-E-D-Reid, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. The show's been growing and growing, but I'd love to reach more people, and especially I'm trying to get a huge push in the lead-up to Christmas, which will be the end of the year and the end of the season. So I'll give you some more details about that a bit closer to the time, but in the meantime, if you could review the show on iTunes, spread the word on Twitter, on Facebook, tell your friends, whatever you like, it would be really, really appreciated. So thank you very much, and thanks for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks.